I'm Ross Wiener, Executive Director of the Education and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't think of a better way to close out our Ideas in Education uh, strand at the Ideas Festival than this session on scaling great ideas in education. So we've got a number of folks here who are going to come up and tell you just a little bit about uh, the great projects they've been working on and then talk about, give you some, some of their perspective on what it's going to take to scale this um, and to really make a big impact on better educating uh, the, the youth of our country. So I'm very excited. We've got a great group. Um, I will sort of introduce them serially because each one of you is going to give kind of a, a mini presentation and then we'll bring them all up and have some Q&A. So first, uh, let me introduce Richard Tagle. He is the CEO of Higher Achievement, uh, a, a sort of youth development program that um, finds kids with high potential and makes sure to get them in touch with the education uh, and mentoring they need. So Richard, please come on up. incredible festival. This is my first year um, to be part of this and I'm, I'm humbled and honored as a young man who grew up and you know, was born and raised in the Philippines to finally be up front and center uh, talking to the most brilliant minds in the country is, is just a humbling experience. So higher achievement and what is our great idea? Our great idea that we are taking to scale is the fact that one underperforming and low performing um, poor minority students can actually get on track to performing at proficiency levels. That's one great idea. The second idea is that you can actually do that and bring along a community with it, tapping into institutions and individuals in a community that have no connection to public education whatsoever, no children in public schools, know nothing about public schools, and really create kind of relationships with young people that get them on track uh, to success. The third great idea is that you can esta actually establish short-term goals with young people and match that up with their ability to perform, to, to form longer-term goals beyond college. Really forming this sort of what do I want to do with my life kind of, a, kind of goal. So that's the great idea that Higher Achievement is trying to promote. How do we do that? Operationally, we do a year-round rigorous academic support program for middle school kids starting with fifth grade to eighth grade. Uh, in underserved urban districts, we start out in Washington, D.C. We've been there for 30 years, the best kept secret in Washington, D.C., as we always hear. Uh, we've now grown into Baltimore, Maryland, Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, this summer, we're going to Richmond, and we're looking at six other cities to take our program to in the next three to five years. Um, we provide a summer, a six-week summer program, a 26-week uh, after-school uh, academy, Overall, each student in the program devotes 650 hours of out-of-school academic work each year for four years, in addition to the 900 hours they spend in school. So we're actually training them to have long work weeks uh, by the time they get into their careers. What we have we learned in terms of our work? One, taking a great idea to scale is not about scaling program components. It's not about projects. It's not about organizations going to scale, but creating the conditions for success so that even if the organization, even if higher achievement is no longer there, the relationships are sustained, the relationships are enhanced, institutions are far better off uh, than they were uh, than when, when higher achievement wasn't around. So there are three components to this kind of scaling 
conditions for success. One is a clear vision that the school district has in terms of how it's going to perform better. One of the things that we always thought ourselves to have is that we're creating a pipeline of middle school kids. If you watched uh, last night's film, Jeffrey Canada said, you know, it's the middle school piece. If you look at the middle school uh, period, try to remember when you were in middle school. This is a great transition, a critical transition period in your life. A lot of your world perspectives is created uh, during your middle school years. And you hold on to that perspective for the rest of your life. And so for us to create this pipeline of middle school students who need to go into rigorous high schools uh, is something that we have to rely with school districts that we're partnering with. So they need to have that kind of vision so that what we're doing is we're feeding into that, into that plan. Otherwise, there is no other recourse but to take this pipeline of, of um, high-achieving, well-meaning citizens, um, as young as they can be citizens of the community, to go into private school, parochial school, or charter schools. So if there's no plan around high school reform in these districts that we're partnering with, that is the other choice that a lot of our scholars would have. Second piece is this notion of family engagement. There's no way that we as a program can advocate for these children all the way through college and beyond. It is their families who's going to be doing that for them. One of the ways that we do that is we help them navigate the school system. We teach them how to look at the school data, how to tell whether a school is high performing, what do they look for in a school, how do they interact with the teachers, what do they ask teachers, how do they look at student work, how do they look at children's work, what are they doing during homework time, right? Even if it's just picking up a piece of paper and looking at it and saying what it is that you're doing, that's already an act of advocacy on behalf of families. And so how we train families to not just be engaged, but become advocates for their children and other people's children is something that we, that we are focused and centered on. Third, talent. We devote a lot of training and systems and processes and data orientation for every staff member on volunteer in our program. For every child in the program, we bring in three academic mentors. And these academic mentors are volunteers. And we always say, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits out here who basically are, have this gratitude, oh, thank you so much for volunteering and putting in some of your time. But you're not trained. You don't have materials. You're not empowered to be a change agent in a young person's life. And so what we ask as volunteers is also to go through a rigorous training process uh, to be part of this. We ask them for long-term commitment. Minimum requirement to be a volunteer in higher achievement is one year. We found out that any time less than a year is actually detrimental. It actually produces negative results uh, for our children because they're going to be part of the churn in a young person's life. Challenges. Challenges in scaling. How people define scale uh, varies. A lot of people are just asking us numbers. Can you do this for more kids? You say yes, but you also have to look at the intensity of the program. Four years, fifth through eighth, 650 hours a year for each kid, three volunteer mentors for every child. In addition to that, we work with their teachers. We have a family member. We have a homework and achievement coach. So there's at least eight people 
working hand in hand around this child, saying you are going to be successful, this is how you're gonna do it, and a lot of the work needs to be put in uh, by the child himself or herself. So this notion of scale, can you actually, do you need to serve all kids, all middle school kids in a school to change that school culture and expectations? And we say you only have to uh, serve a critical mass of students in that school to change its culture, to change high expectations, to change peer pressure, to make sure that there's a group of kids who are really um, influencing how other young people are thinking about their future. The second challenge is really a big challenge for us and other organizations. And that, for every great idea that everybody has, there's somebody else who says, puts a kibosh on it. That idea is not gonna work. Um, it's too expensive, too costly, or it's too intense. You can't replicate that kind of intensity in poor minority communities. This is a challenge that I face as a leader of, of an organization who also grew up in a poor country. I was enraged last night when I saw the film because I said, in a powerful country such as this, achievement is now up to luck. Talented kids, basically you're, you're letting young people let luck dictate where they're going to be. And so what we're doing at Higher Achievement is we're not gonna rely on luck. We're gonna rely on a network of individuals who make sure that every kid in the program is successful, that there are pathways to success. We're not going to rely on lottery or luck to put you on the path to success. Our results, 93% of our cohort in 2006 have gone on to college. 100% of our scholars increased their test scores in math and reading. Grades improved. Scholars start out in our program with a 1.6 GPA in their fifth grade. By the time they graduate in the eighth grade, their GPAs are 3.6 or higher. All of them have to go through a high school application, at least one public school, two private schools, or a charter school. And all of these choices we look at, we train their parents and their families in terms of how you look at these applications, what you look for in a school, and how you navigate that system to make sure that you are not relying on lottery or luck or sweepstakes, but basically you have a plan of action. If, this, if your child doesn't get into this school, there's another plan of action to look at other uh, avenues um, for education. So this is our great idea. These are challenges and a lot of lessons learned. We're doing our scaling in a very cautious, strategic way. We rely on a lot of partnerships, not just with the school districts, but also with a lot of program providers, because a lot of these things need to happen as a community collaboration. And that's also another great idea that needs to be scaled, is how you basically take, as, take an assessment of what's already going on in the community, enhance it, enrich it, and make it sustainable. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. That was a great start for us. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Jack Hittery. He is the founder of the Jack D. Hittery Foundation. Uh, he is an architect of the Cash for Clunkers program that stimulated auto sales, uh, car sales in this country. Um, and he is chair of National Lab Day. Um, National Lab Day is featured, actually, 
um, in uh, the current issue of Time Magazine, uh, the history issue, and it's talking about Thomas Edison and, and innovation in America. So uh, we're delighted. And Jack, if you'd come up. Waiting for Superman last night. Who here was so depressed they didn't want to get up this morning? <laughs> Who here still wants to just believe in Superman, just wait for him anyway, despite the movie, right? We have a big issue. The Aspen folks asked me to do two things today. I'm going to talk about one of our projects, National Lab Day, but I'm also going to really delve into the scale issue, kind of just give a sense of, we heard a bit of it in the movie, but really kind of delve into a few details on how big is this issue, what is the challenge, and how can we possibly find some networks and tools and techniques, some of which you'll hear about today, to really bring this together. So before we get into National Lab Day itself, one thing mentioned in the movie last night is where we stand on math and science. And I'll use that as a proxy for where we stand on a number of different issues. Since you can't read this from the back, I've decided to highlight it for you. So we have 50 million folks, 50 million students in pre-K through 12. That's just public schools. Private schools, another 6 million. And by the way, we also need to think about the private schools because not each one of them is getting a great education. If you haven't already figured it out, I'm from New York City. I can speak in tw 20 minutes of material in 10 minutes. <laughs> we're number 24 in math, we're number 25 in science. That is a disaster. Estonia, Slovenia, Macau, by the way. The island of Macau. Now, he's ahead of us, by the way, in math and science. There's a lot of math happening on Macau. A lot of math. I went to visit and went to the opening of the Venetian casino there. A lot of math happening. But not exactly the kind of math we're focused on. But yet, they're ahead of us. So let's look at some of the kinds of programs out there. I love FIRST Robotics. Who here loves FIRST Robotics? We love FIRST Robotics. We build robots with kids. We mentor them. We build these robots. We bring them to a, this soccer field that we build. And the robots fight with each other. And the teams win. And it's fantastic. They go to the uh, Atlanta, to the big dome there. 80,000 people cheering, fantastic. We love it. It's 18 years old. They reach about 1,800 schools, about 150,000 kids right now. So again, rem let's remember, 50 million kids, pre-K through 12. 50 million, plus six, 56 million. We reach 150,000 with one of the most successful, proven programs that the country has ever developed. Teach for America, we love Teach for America. A few thousand fellows every year. How many teachers do we have? We have 3.3 million in the public school today, another 500,000 in private school. We heard from last night from the movie that, hey, one of the academics said, if you just get rid of the top, bottom 10%, then we could be like Finland. We could be on track to have the scores of Finland. That's one of the, um, one of the academics said something like, let's get rid, let's replace the bottom 10%. And okay, 10% is what? 330,000 new teachers, not counting growth. There's been a 12% increase in the number of teachers since 1999. That's just on public school side. So again, the scale is large. Number of kids in charter schools, 70,000 in New York City with one of the chancellors who's most pro-charter. In the nation, 1.5 million students. Bill, I think you just addressed the National Charter Convention. One and a half million students out of 56 million students. So again, and we heard about some of the the good and the pros and the cons, and in general, Charter is doing a great job, some issues obviously to address, but let's just take it as a general positive, only a million and a half. So we think scale, and you want to think the next five, seven, ten years, in that relatively short time frame when it comes to education, 
How do we actually get there? How do we actually do these things? So just a pipeline analysis. This was done by Raytheon. Raytheon, the CEO there, very interested, obviously, in math and science. Raytheon hires lots of techies, lots of scientists. And the CEO is saying, wait a second, how come we can't find qualified people? Well, he actually asked his operational engineers who actually build these kinds of plants to go in and do a plant valve analysis of the flow of kids from high school through STEM education, STEM standing for science, tech, engineering, and math. And here's what we found. In ninth grade right now, this is 2001, 4 million ninth graders. Today, it's more like 4.4 million ninth graders right now in public schools. What are the chances that they're going to end up in some kind of STEM major, any kind of STEM major, when they graduate from college? So what has to happen? First, they've got to actually graduate high school. Then they've got to go to college. Then they have to graduate college. And within college, they've got to pick something tangentially related to science, tech, engineering, or math. What is the number at the end? Hard to see for maybe some folks. 167,000. Four and a half million you start with, 167,000 at the end. By the way, on a percentage basis, what does that mean? Back in the post-Sputnik mission to the moon era, what percentage of college grads chose STEM as a major? 30%. This represents 15%. So although we're sending more kids to college in general since that time, we're a bigger country, we have more people, the percentage basis on which people are choosing STEM is half. So we've got a problem here. And again, this is not just in STEM, this is other issues as well, but let's just take that as one proxy. Here's some good news. We know it works. And I'll let Sonia go into depth about MC Squared STEM. You'll hear about it. It's a fantastic school that has taken the step to say, we're going to change the way we have kids learn. I don't say educate kids, I say have kids learn. In fact, we're going to let kids learn like they want to learn, through discovery. There are very few textbooks. Textbooks are used in the school in Cleveland, Ohio, just as access, reference. And what they do is project-based work. I'll let her describe it. Here are the numbers. The eighth grade, this is where their achievements were before they went into the special school, MC Squared STEM. This is not a magnet school. This is a school that is a public school, not even a charter school. And here's their grades. On the left, you see eighth grade, 68%, 50%, 30%, 37%. After one and a half years, they're given the 10th grade exam Ohio State standardized testing. And here's what you see. Not just an increase in math and science, although this is a math and science focused school, but increases in reading and writing and English and other areas. These kids are engaged. I went to visit the school, and you will be blown away by these kids. These kids were coming in below 50% to get into the school, and now they're doing graduate level work. They go out to the community. They do work in the community. They bring back research, and all the teachers work together the results are in. This is stuff that is supported by lots of great people, and it's now been replicated in many other schools, not just this school. So what did we say that we have to do here? We said, let's think about how we can leverage this administration and a lot of other networks that we have out there to actually say, how can we meet the scale challenge? So here's some of the agencies we went to. Lots of different initials. If you think of any three letters, put them together, we probably went to those people. <laughs> We went to other kinds of partners, NSTA. They're an association, not a union, of a lot of the teachers, the science teachers, National Science Teachers Association. Went to ACS and 100 other professional societies. ACS is the American Chemical Society. These are the folks who are the chemists. We went to the physicists, the biologists, the mathematicians, the architects, the electricians, the chefs, the musicians. 
we're not interested just to bring scientists into the classroom. We said, how about if a chef comes in? I just sat down with Daniel Boulou. Anyone like Daniel Boulou or his restaurant? Well, guess what? He's coming into the classroom with us doing food science to say, okay, how can we get all these folks together? MacArthur, Gates Foundation, NIH, NSF. We went to the corporate community. We said, Motorola, HB, and others. Can you come in onto this network? Because to achieve scale, to achieve the kind of numbers we are looking for, 10 million kids in this program within five years, one quarter of the kids that are in our focus group, we need partnerships. And that, to me, is one of the keys of scale. You heard about partnerships with Richard before. We need a massive number of partnerships. In four months, we reached 200 partners, brought them into this, and I'm going to show you some of those results. So what exactly are we talking about? What we're saying is that if teachers are interested in a new kind of approach to bringing their kids and getting them excited and engaging them with hands-on learning, with challenge-based learning, what's the way that we can scale that up? It's been tried before. It's successful on small scales. We know it's successful at MC Squared STEM. But how about the 50 million kids? How are we going to bring the MC Squared STEM experience to 50 million kids? We can do that through this kind of method. We can have a matching system. Everyone here knows Match.com, eHarmony. You see the commercials on TV? Well, guess what? Computer algorithms, the same ones that can match people for dating, can also say, wait a second, I'm a K-12 teacher. I go online. I say, I'm looking for two biologists. I want to do some water quality testing with my kids. I want the biologists to come and help us do that with us and explain what's inside that water, what's swimming around in there. I want an ornithologist to come with us and go out to the field. I want a chef to come in. We're going to do food science. We're going to boil an egg and figure out why when you make something hot, it gets hard. What happens there? We're going to bring a musician in. We have musicians coming in and figuring out, OK, here's some pieces of wood and metal and things like that. Let's make some musical instruments. And the physicist comes with the musician to figure out, how does that make music? And the, and the kids have to figure that out. And so when teachers sign up and teachers post projects, these are requests, the projects get matched with scientists and volunteers. And this is happening now across 50 states. The president launched this in January 6th of this year. We're six months old. And so when we look at some of the activities, OK. When we look at some of the activities, here's the homepage itself. So teachers come, they sign up. Scientists come, they sign up. Volunteers, organizations. Here's an example of an activity. Build a better mousetrap. This is in Manchester, Tennessee. Not a lot of resources in this school. This school is a mobile home. It's a FEMA-like mobile home brought on site because they ran out of space in the main building, which is very small also. And this teacher, Mrs. Benson, said, I'm looking for the following. I need three scientists and three volunteers. I need $145 in materials to do solar energy challenge-based learning with my kids. I want my kids to themselves, with the volunteers, install solar, understand the physics, the math, and the chemistry of the solar panel, figure out on their own how much electricity is going to be produced, and do the whole thing themselves. And for that, I need materials, I need scientists, I need volunteers. She got all those three in 10 days on National Lab Day. Notice that we have Donors Choose as a partner. So don't reinvent the wheel. You can use different partners. Donors Choose is a great organization that helps people get donors. And so we use that. The donation got done. The scientists came. The volunteers came. She has a fantastic experience. And we've now replicated that in thousands and thousands of communities across America. Here are teachers and projects. If I went in as a scientist, this would be my matches as an example. So I'm matched with all these folks. Here are organizations, Project Lead the Way. All these organizations, like Citizens of Schools, Project Lead the Way, 400 organizations have chosen to use National Lab Day as a platform 
Just like various organizations use Facebook as a platform to get to folks, these organizations are recruiting teachers, scientists, volunteers, and others via the National Lab Day matching network. And again, we did all this in six months. Argonne National Lab, another example. They're recruiting various teachers and scientists to their various programs at Argonne. They're showing videos on National Lab Day. We make it really easy. Goals, hands-on learning of one million kids by spring 2011. We've already reached almost 500,000 kids in the first six months. This summer, we're doing a seed program, down, seed program down in D.C. with the National Society of Black Engineers, and we're kicking up again in the spring. And so we have 200 partners, 1,500 schools I mentioned. Just to show you one or two examples, some photos. Here's Joel Klein. Joel's one of the biggest supporters of this, and chances when they hear about this are great. What's funny about this program is that we have the support of both the chancellors and the unions. So we've got Randy, we've got all the unions, and we've got the chancellors and the scientists, the techies, and others. We brought Hollywood in. This is Tim Daly from ABC's The Practice. We have 40 different actors and celebrities who joined us at different events and projects around the country, and that has also helped to kick it up as well. Here, these kids are building bridges, physically building bridges that they designed on CAD CAM software. They have to build the bridge themselves. Again, this is the reverse of what we're doing in schools today. Most schools today, we tell kids the answer, then we test them on it. In this case, we give kids the challenge. Build a bridge that can withstand the following earthquake, stand the following shocks. And then we test each bridge. One of the heads of the DOE came over to test it with them. These kids, it's a two-week project, learned a lot from that program. Here's Arnie Duncan. Here's a nuclear engineer who works for the Department of Energy, working with Arnie Duncan and ourselves on various projects with acceleration, things like that. These are third graders essentially learning topics in calculus. They're learning about the first and second derivatives of speed. They don't know those terms, but that's what they're learning. They don't have to know those terms. This is what they're doing on a regular basis. These kids are programming robots, and they're asking the robot to dance and tell stories, which it did. These kids built rocket ships with Charlie Bolden, the head of NASA. And again, yes, we have some of the celebrities come, but these kids are doing it across the nation without those celebrities as well. Each rocket was tested in a very large room twice the size, and kids got competitive awards based on how far their rocket went. Here is NASA Skyping in. So we're using Skype as well for remote classrooms that we have Alaskan classrooms, classrooms in the middle of nowhere. We're Skyping the mentors in. Here is a mentor working with a kid after the project to go over the results of that particular project with them. Um, I won't go through the video now because I want to get to the other speakers. Um, but suffice it to say that we're very proud of the first six months. A lot more has to be done. This is really just a taste of what can be done. And so when we think about the scale, we think about 50 million kids pre-K through 12. We think about the number of teachers. We think about the fact that teachers are seeking this help. We didn't market a lot to the teachers. We didn't have a big marketing budget. We went to a couple of conferences. We sent around some emails. We used Facebook, things like that. The teachers came out in droves. They're searching for these kinds of tools. We're offering them the ability to have mentors match to them, resources come in, all in one package that is easy to use. And the partnerships are absolutely critical. The fact that all the foundations came in, the fact that the White House stepped up, not with money, but with bully pulpit, the fact that all these corporations stepped up and emailed their people inside Motorola and inside HP and inside all these other places and said, I'm willing to step up and, and engage. And this is not the end. We have to innovate a lot more. National Lab Day itself was May 12th. That was our kickoff date. We'll be announcing a new branding in September to make it clear this is an all-year-round effort. So we've been doing projects all year round since January, and we'll continue to do so over the next five years. Our goal, 10 million kids in the program within five years. Thank you very much.
Thanks. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I think that was maybe 30 minutes uh, of content in 10 minutes, but that was great. And a great compliment just in terms of thinking about different ways of constructing and using networks. Uh, now I'm delighted to introduce Nicole uh, Pinkard. She is the founder of the Digital Youth Network um, and the co-creator of Remix World and the Chicago Ooh. Public Library's U Media uh, that you might have heard of if you were uh, in the session with Connie Owl and Chancellor Joel Klein. So, Nicole, we're delighted. Thank you. Okay, so let me begin and we'll catch up. Um, I am here to talk to you about a program and a framework called the Digital Youth Network. And the DYN program starts with this premise, this question that I think we are all focused on trying to explore now. Perfect. Um, if we believe that what it means to be literate in a society is connected to what, it, what the technological innovations are at this time, then as a society right now, we're at a point where we have to question what does it mean to be literate? What does it mean for us? But what does it mean for a kid in the sixth grade, a kid in the first grade? What is it gonna mean for them? In the lifetime of a high school senior, my 18-year-old stepson, all of these things have changed. And so the very nature of communication has changed. For me, when you know there was all kinds of innovation when I was a kid, but still if I wanted to talk to my grandmother, I had to either write a letter or pick up a phone. Today, my two-year-old nephew, he video conferences with my mother. So the very nature of communication has changed, which means we have to figure out how to adapt. So I wanna ask you to think about what is the best medium to do the following? For you or me, we might think still text, but what if I tell you that I taught a sewing class not knowing how to sew, using video from Instructables where girls and boys looked at the video, learned how to sew, and then put in electronics to create these animated characters. So even for basic things that we think about that are still traditional, technology is impacting it. So my argument or the big idea is that in, in addition to being traditionally literate with text, oral numeracy, Kids today, everyone today, needs to be literate in all of these areas, graphical, visual, cinematic, interactive. These are all new modes of communication that we all need to take on. So what does that look, at, look like? Let me introduce you to a young man, Jalen. Jalen is a young man who's been working with us from the sixth grade through eighth grade. He's graduated now from eighth grade and he's going to one of the best high schools in the city. When Jalen started working with us, he knew nothing really about technology. His father's a writer and they had done a great effort in making great, uh, Jalen a great writer. But in three years, Jalen has taken his love for anime and has learned how to create graphic novels. He's created his anime music videos. He's even taken his characters and, and uh, figured out how to put them onto Nike tennis shoes. So he walks around with tennis shoes that have his, 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 um, his versions of, of these characters. But in addition, to anime, how he's used media to engage anime, 
Jalen is U.S. First Robotics. He's done U three years of U.S. First Robotics. He's creating his own video games. This is his version of Tetris that he's learned how to do. And he's also doing digital music. So Jalen has encompassed all of these things. And at the same time, Jalen is a very good student. So I don't want you to think that there's only one Jalen, and Jalen is unique. I can show you on the south side of Chicago 150 kids who look just like Jalen. So how does that happen? First, the important thing, and this is the big idea, a lot of times when we talk about learning, we're very focused on schools, and we don't think about the connections to other places. So in our work, we said particularly given working with 100% African-American, 90% low-income, schools can't be the only place. And so our solutions take into account all of these. First, we're so fortunate to be able to connect them through the Internet, but that's not enough. In addition to connecting them, we have to figure out how to make the learning move from one space to the other space to the other. So this is exactly what it looks like in our context. In the school, we have media arts club programs. Every kid, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, takes a media art class. And such, that creates the base set of literacies, digital literacies, that teachers can rely on. So every teacher knows what a kid can do at the beginning of the 6th grade, at the middle of the 6th grade, at the 7th grade, and 8th grade. Second, after school is passion-driven. If you want to do robotics, if you want to do music, if you want to do video games, we have a program for you. Jalen is a young man who was with us every day of the week. So he did music on Monday, robotics on Tuesday, video game design on Wednesday. He was there every day. Other kids were just there one day. Third, we've created our own social network that's controlled and, and focused on learning. So all kids have access to mentors, each other, to peers, 24-7. Right now, if I were to log, log on to our social network, we would see kids, school's out, and a lot of people have talked about the biggest gap for kids is what's lost in the summer. Our kids are working with mentors and each other on creating digital artifacts online. And the last thing that we've added is the community, particularly working with high school youth. We've partnered with libraries where we've taken our work out of the schools and into the libraries. So students who aren't uh, fortunate to go to our schools have the ability to come to a local library a 5,000 square foot digital space, and uh, check out com computers, learn any of the digital media, interact with media. Last, um, last night we had over 100 kids at the Harold Washington Library just listening to each other's poetry. Would you ever think that you would have a book club at the library that if you walked in, if there were 50 kids, 48 of those kids would be African American men discussing a book? This is what we've been able to create in our, in our context. This is just another picture of what it looks like. Media art, sixth grade is a record label class. Seventh grade is digital storytelling. Every kid takes a digital storytelling class. Um, these are all the after school programs. So what happens when you have this together, school looks different. One of the biggest challenges of integrating digital media is that it's all placed on teachers. Teachers are expected to do all of this. In our context, the teachers say, I know where you can learn it. You need to go learn it. But I'm going to expect you to be able to make a documentary film for your seventh grade social studies class. And so what you'll see, if you walked into this school, all kids are doing documentary films in the seventh grade. Kids who have done robotics choose to do um, robots for their science, so they're for their science project. So we showed you Jalen. And one of the questions is, well, OK, there's Jalen. But do you have any evidence of impact? We were fortunate to work with a group of uh, researchers at Stanford um, where we did a three-year ethnography of our students, but also we compared our students to a group of kids in Silicon Valley who might not have had the same after-school programs but come from environments that have these resources. 
And what we've seen is when you asked these kids, these are 16 types of digital activities that one might say, if you, if you do, you're becoming digitally literate. If you look at these 16 activities and if you ask the kid, have you ever done it? And have you done it any one activity more than six times? At the beginning of sixth grade year, 96% of our kids scored lower than the kids in Silicon Valley. At the end of the eighth grade year, 84% of our kids scored higher. And what does that look like based on the data? Kids in Chicago in our school have done, of those 16 things, have done 11 of them at least once. They've done four of those things at least six times. So I showed you Jalen. He's done 24 music video. He's done 24 videos. He's done, five, he's done 15 games. He has about 10 to 12 songs. So he's one of those kids that has found four of those areas of digital media to really engage in. But the important issue here, and I think that I really want to focus on, is that often, this is what we learn when we really talk to the kids and talk to the parents. Normally when we think about the roles that kids need in their lives to help them, we normally think of these as parent roles. You need someone to be your teacher, your broker, your collaborator, your provider, your supporter. Oftentimes you're teaching your, your parent or your parents employing you. So in Chicago, you could do a lot of effort to try to help the parents to do this. But what we said is, well, let's, let's extend this and let's not make it parent roles. Let's make it learner roles and let's bring in mentors and let's allow kids to play the roles for themselves. And so what we've seen when we ask kids both in Chicago and Silicon Valley, who helped you get to where you are today? In Silicon Valley, what you see is 70% of the kids say their fathers. Some kids say their mothers. In Chicago, it's the after-school program, right? So it is possible to create environments, ecologies, if you will, that can um, supplement, not take the place of, but supplement some of the support structures that we know are important for all kids to learn. And what you end up with, again, um, are these types of environments. So I'm not saying everyone needs to create a DYN, but you need to think about in your, in your environments, what's the role of the school? How are you connecting the school to the after school, to the home and the community? We have tools, resources, all of our curriculum is available, our social networks available. We're now doing a training program for di digital mentors out of DePaul University where we can train people to implement the work. And finally, the core components, or skilled mentors, you have to train them. Mentors in the school space don't have to be teachers. They can be others. How do you bring in your media artists who live in your community and have them work for three hours? Artifact-based curriculum, what I mean by that is projects. Kids want to do projects. In the act of creating a project, they're gonna iterate and they're gonna do better. Programming across the spaces which we talked about, learning has to happen beyond school, beyond after school, in the home and in the community and technology access, which we are seeing. Jalen was a kid who had access to a laptop. The important thing, this is a school that's 100% African American. We didn't give them laptops, the parents paid for them. And what we said to our families, if you have a Nintendo at home, if you have an Xbox, if you could pay 300 for that, you can pay 300 a month, 300 a year, 300 a year to have access to a computer. That access to technology enabled learning to take place across all of these spaces. I want to acknowledge everyone who's worked with us um, across California and Chicago. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Nicole. That was, that was a wonderful presentation. Um, and now um, it's my pleasure to introduce Sonia Pryor-Jones. Uh, she's the executive director of the Cleveland Consortium for STEM Education, which is part of a broader network uh, around STEM uh, for the state of Ohio, uh, and is deeply engaged, as you heard from Jack, uh, with uh, a STEM school um, in Cleveland. So, 
Sarah. Sonia. I'm sorry. But I'm going to just speak very loud um, in case it's not. But it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to talk to you about what's going on in the state of Ohio. And I'd like to frame this at, at two levels. We're going to, I'm going to share the story of Ohio with you because it provides the context for the work that I'm responsible for in Cleveland. As mentioned, I serve as the executive director for our local public-private partnership that focuses on K-12 STEM education and making that a possibility specifically and particularly for kids from our urban communities and also the rural areas in Ohio. So our big idea is the thought that big ideas in education can happen and happen well based on a sustainable model when you have intentional networks. And so what I'd like to leave you with are at least three takeaways. Um, one would be you having a better understanding of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. Two would be a bit of a snapshot, providing you with a little bit more detail about MC Squared STEM High School, which was the school that Jack referred to and he's had the pleasure to visit. And then the third would be a desire. And that's a desire in your heart to get involved in our effort, whether you're going to get involved in our network in Ohio or you're going to think about how you can get involved in STEM education in your neighborhoods. So I have a couple of slides behind me. So first, the Ohio story. The network in Ohio started truly based on a public-private partnership. In the summer of 2007, the Ohio legislatures decided that it was important to start thinking about both education and economic development and workforce development in the same conversation. And so what they decided to do was to pass something called House Bill 119. And what House Bill 119 did for us in Ohio is really laid the groundwork for our innovative STEM high schools, one that I'll talk about a little bit later. One, it provided some state funding and resources to actually design and seed high schools across the state. And two, it provided some good policy for teachers and administrators on the ground to try some creative practices. Simultaneously, and, and in a complement activity to that, we had Battelle and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation establish the Ohio STEM Learning Network, which was created to be an umbrella organization in the state of Ohio to support STEM education with both financial and human capital resources. Fast forward. There's a map behind me here of the state of Ohio, and I'm going to kind of move from behind you. What has happened is a value-added network. Since summer of 2007, we now have 10 STEMS high schools in our state that are all working together through a network. We have 26 programs of excellence. These are K-8 programs focused on kids at those grade levels. And then we also have been able to garner the support of over 400 partners in our effort across the state, from business, higher ed, the philanthropic and some community organizations. So what's happening in Cleveland, AKA the Cleveland Hub? So there's more happening in Cleveland besides thinking about the talent that's on the basketball court, right? <laughs> so we're also thinking about the talent that we can engage our kids in and how we can grow them. And so in the Cleveland area, you have 50 partners come together and rally around this whole notion of STEM education some large and some small, and you'll hear more about that later. But everything from GE Neela Park, which is GE's lighting uh, company in our, in our great city, to the Cleveland and Gun Foundation, which are local foundations that are very supportive of efforts for Cleveland children and quality of life issues. Fast forward, we have this hub in Cleveland, 
and it's our role at this hub to really push the partners to support the work at the ground level. And so in addition to the one snapshot school I'm gonna tell you about, you should also know that in our region we have a second platform high school and we also have four K-8 programs of, of, of excellence. And I'll also point to you that you all have these folders. Make sure you take them with you and there's some literature in there about the work. So, MC Square STEM High School. This is a fantastic uh, place. Jack's description, you know, could tell you the least of all the great things that are going on here, and I don't even have enough time today, but I'm gonna share a few important facts with you. This school was designed and built by the Cleveland community with the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. So unlike many schools that you hear that are great and doing great things that are charter schools, this school is a part of the public school system. And Cleveland's system is one of the largest urban districts in our community. And so the innovation can happen within the school district with the right kind of partners. And so this particular high school now has juniors. In fact, this week, right after the holiday, we had juniors go out and they're participating in internships all across the city. And they're showing what they've learned in the classroom and beginning to put that out in public in real time. So just to step back, some other really important pieces about the model. It's a campus-based model. So st these kids get to go to school every day in a STEM organization. So our ninth grade students are located at the Great Lakes Science Center. So for those of you who are familiar with COZI, Museum of Science, that's Cleveland's version of that work led by Dr. Linda Abraham Silver. So every day, ninth grade students travel to downtown Cleveland and they get to participate in school with their teachers, with educators in an informal science organization. What's also fabulous about the Great Lakes Science Center is they have a partnership with NASA. They have just recently become the home of NASA's Visitor Center. So our kids are not only engaged with the informal educators of the Great Lakes Science Center, but also NASA employees and the Visitor Center. And that's every day for them. It gets better in 10th grade. In 10th grade, our kids go to school every day at GE Neva Park. This is a historic campus of the GE business. This is a Fortune 500 company. And as of right now, we believe that we're the only ones that have urban high school kids from a public school district going to school every day with GE engineers and GE business people. Fabulous. And what's been great is the kind of community involvement that's been rallied around this work. And what that does is it allows our kids access hundreds of hours of access to very engaging and meaningful human capital. So they don't have to just dream about what it means to be an engineer or hear from an engineer on you know, career day, but they get to be exposed to engineers every day. They get to shadow with them. They get to have them as their tutors. They get to talk with them over lunch in the cafeteria where our kids and GE employees eat together. GE has also made a huge investment in this by um, providing us with a full-time liaison that works side-by-side -side with the school principal every day. So those are the features of the embedded STEM campus that we're able to provide. And opening in this upcoming school year will be a, a downtown regional campus, which will really allow our kids to have access to the city. So the variety of colleges and universities and additional uh, businesses that are located in our community that will be supporting their efforts. Another important piece of the work is the project-based learning. As Jack mentioned earlier on, these kids are doing schoolwork in a very unique way. This is teaching and learning, and it's not just teaching and learning for the kids, but it's also happening for the faculty and staff. So students are building projects. 
They start with a big idea or a big question, and they spend 10 weeks working on that big idea or question in building units. And so they're able to really explore and draw conclusions about the work. And that's the way that the learning really sticks with our young people. These project-based learning units are really put on fire because we also have an MIT fab lab in the school. And so for those of you who are familiar with the fab lab, it allows for personal fabrication and prototyping. So they can take all these project ideas and actually turn it into something that's tangible and a deliverable project. Some other important pieces to uh, mention to you, the school is based on a year-round calendar. So students are in school 10 weeks and then they're off three weeks. And while our kids are off for three weeks, teachers spend one full week in embedded professional development. That is really critical. We've heard time and time again this week about how important it is to, to provide teachers with the infrastructure for collaboration. That's built into this school model. And so what I'd like to do is to delve deeper into the model and have you hear from one of our students. Um, and I think you'll hear in these comments a lot of things about the attributes of a STEM student. student at MC Square STEM High School, which is a high school located in Cleveland, Ohio. So, school is a project-based, hands-on, mastery-based learning school. It's a mouthful. Um, basically, if you don't get 90% or higher on a project or a paper or something that you're working on, you don't get mastery, which is basically an A. And then you keep working on it until you get mastery. Absolutely. Um, most schools, they just give you a book and say, this is how someone did it in history, learn from it. Here, they say, this is how someone did it in history, try and replicate it or do something similar, make your own mistakes and learn from them. This is my Lightbox project. Is, is we had to have something that gave us an abstract representation of one of our benchmarks in history. My partner and I couldn't decide whether we wanted to do the Silk Road or the Crusades, which is how we came up with the Crusaders Road. That's pretty cool. Um, and so everything up top is facts about the Crusades and the Silk Road. And it's on acrylic and it was etched with our epilogue laser. Really cool. Um, so what it is, is when you turn the knob, the lights on the top come up and the lights behind the paper shine through and they're different points as if points on a map. Um, as far as wiring is concerned, it uses a NAND gate which basically means that you have to have at least one negative input to get a positive output. Um, so it's difficult to see the word on here, but if both switches, um, with all of our projects, we incorporate every class. And so with this, we had to write an um, essay for English. Um, this was for our uh, engineering and science benchmark because we actually had to um, do the wiring, which it looks like a bomb in there. <laughs> Can I see? Yes. When we made it, it was funny because people were constantly saying, oh, are you making a bomb? <laughs> and so it's pretty mm, cool. It's kind of complicated. Yes, it's, it's a big mess of wires, but it works. So I'm happy. Um, and the front of it, the actual design was for our art credit. The wiring was for engineering. For social studies, it was a social, social studies benchmark that we actually Centered the box around. Pinsky Triangle. Mr. Pinsky Triangle. It's made I'll actually have you stop the video um, at this point just for time. For any of you who are interested, you can pick this video up on our website or just go to YouTube, put in MC Squared STEM. That young lady is Jessica Hammock. 
Um, Jessica is a junior starting this week because we're on that year-round calendar. And what I hope you really capture from Jessica is not just her description about how project-based learning works in her school, which she does it better than any of us adults, but also the kind of attributes that are really being built up in the characteristics in a student like, Jer uh, like Jessica. All those things that we say we need for 21st century and beyond leadership and workforce. You know, she's a team player, she's a systems thinker and designer, um, excellent communicator. And so we're getting all of that out of our children in this school. A couple of other successes, and um, the successes in Ohio are happening at multiple levels, and that's important because we really do believe in this intentional network that you have to have certain infrastructure in place in order to, to really begin to fuel innovation, and that's in, in, in any area, any sector. So some other things I want to point out. So remember I said in 2007 we had this House Bill 119 happen. Well, prior to all of that, we had a wonderful school in Columbus, Ohio called Metro School, and we referred to, to that as our Alpha School. And that was a project of Battelle on its own, but it was one that really inspired them to do this greater work. So fast forward, a couple of years later, Metro has graduated its first class of students this year, went to that graduation and totally put me on fire. Can't wait to see what our kids are going to do when they graduate. 100% going off to college, about 50% of those kids going off to Ohio State University with more than two years of their college coursework already taken care of. Okay, so these are the kind of things that we're expecting for our kids from NC Square STEM High School as well. So fast forward, you had that one school, now you have 10. All right. In addition to that, there's a change in teacher practice. So teachers are real comfortable with seeing themselves as facilitators of the work with their colleagues, with their students. And so it really puts them in a different place about what it is that they're to do and to deliver as it relates to teaching and learning in the classroom. The other thing I talk about is what's happening in Ohio and in Cleveland, and that's an investment in the teacher pipeline. We can build all of these fabulous STEM high schools, but if we don't have teachers coming out of our education programs ready to be in those schools, we're at a loss. And so in Ohio, you have Woodrow Wilson that is joining us this year, and they're going to produce STEM fellows, STEM teaching fellows across the state. In Cleveland, we're fortunate enough to have STEM fellows that are going to come out of one of our local universities, a private university, John Carroll. But we also have UTeach, which is really being replicated across the country through NINSI. And they're going to be working with Cleveland State University, which is one of the largest public universities in our community, that really pushes out a lot of the teachers that end up in our public school buildings. So we're really excited about that investment and that redesign of teacher pipeline. The other thing I'll talk back to is what Jack started to talk about earlier. And you have this in your materials. I think it's like page four of our annual review, where you see a profile of MC Square STEM High School and you see those test scores. Now, we recognize at this point that those are the floor, and we really do want to get to the ceiling, but it's what we have to show you that we are making progress with our kids. A little clarity, Jack spoke about seeing an increase from eighth grade when the kids entered to 10th grade. In fact, because MC Square STEM High School is a House Bill 119 high school, those students took that test as ninth graders. Wow. So that growth was in less than one year's time, which is important for you to know. In addition to that, the, the school district itself conducted a survey around school conditions. So they spoke with students about what are the things that are important around learning conditions for you in the school environment and the classroom, and over 80% in a positive direction said that they felt challenged, they felt safe, they felt supported. 
In addition to that, we also have excellence attendance uh, school, uh, statistics to show you, uh, which are going really well at MC Square STEM High School. Now, as far as the ceiling is concerned, we're dabbling with that. We've been working with one of our partnering organizations, the PASS Foundation, which is a group of educators and anthropologists, to look at the implications for project-based learning and student engagement in real time. So if you're right there in the classroom watching the, progress of, the progression of engagement of a student, what does that look like through the course of a project? Also, what kind of habits of mind are students building? Because we know if we're building future scientists and engineers, there is a process, you know, a design process, a scientific process of method that you have to go through. Are those habits of mind being built in our children? And so hopefully we'll have some of that information for you in the future. This last slide is just a sampling of our network. This is just a sample of the different organizations that are engaged in a work with us statewide as well as in Cleveland. And what's important to really be thinking about as you look at these logos is all of these individuals have something that they can offer to our children to make them the kind of citizens and the kind of workforce that we know that we need for the future. And what's also been fabulous about this intentional network is we have allowed for people to come in at entry points that are well aligned with their mission. So thank you for the time, and I'd encourage you to get involved in STEM education. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. And our, um, to round out uh, these perspectives on scaling great ideas in education, our, the last presenter this morning is Jim Margraff. He is the founder and CEO of LiveScribe. Um, and if you haven't, uh, I hope some of you have had a chance to uh, take a test drive yourself up uh, by the Pepke tent. If you haven't, I would encourage you to. And Jim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jim Margraff. Uh, I'm CEO and founder of Livescribe. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here today. Um, in the late 80s, uh, there was a, a survey commissioned by National Geographic that uh, was carried out by Gallup. And they looked at geographic literacy in the United States. They found that one in seven US adults couldn't find the United States on an unmarked map of the world. One in four couldn't find the Pacific Ocean. So I read about this and decided to apply some technology. I had been at a telecommunications company, Stratacom, had some flexibility, and created a device that was a sphere on a base with a self-contained computer that would allow you to touch the surface of a globe and it would speak to you. Has anyone ever seen an interactive globe? OK, a few people. So I took that idea, flattened it out, put paper book on it, met with Mike Milken and Mike Wood, who had created, uh, founded LeapFrog, and created something called a LeapPad. Any, any LeapPad uh, users? OK, a few. So um, looked at that technology and really was working at, at interacting with paper as a medium. Found a technology, read an, uh, an article in a Wired magazine, and contacted a company and licensed the technology to create another tool, which involved an enhanced reading, writing, speaking, listening on paper. And to develop this at LeapFrog, it was called the Fly Pentop Computer, and launched it, it, it uh, in, two, in uh, 2005. It won the education, most educational toy of the year, the most innovative toy of the year, and overall toy of the year. But I wanted to go further. I wanted to create something that would be a platform that would work for any mind and allow us to connect a teacher's mind to a student's mind and leverage the best methods of teaching and learning and see what we could do with that. So I'd like to show you that today. I'll start with a demonstration, and then I'll show you what's happened. I introduced this at uh, TED about two years ago before we actually launched this with the company. And it was very exciting, and I'll show you what's happened since then. The scalability potential of this technology and adoption is, is tremendous. So we'll start here and see if this will work. Can we switch to a camera? So this is, this is a computer. It's a fully multimodal computer in the form of a pen. I think good. We've got a screen there, so let's see what happens. 
So, white adjustment. I'm going to take this, I'll plug it in, and I'll write some notes on a paper. So it is a, a pen, I'll say Aspen. Can you see that? Okay, great. So that's digitizing the ink as I write on the page, capturing it, storing it in the pen. When I dock this, it will go to my PC or Mac, and I'll be able to see everything I write. But let's go further. At the bottom of this page, there's some controls, very simple, recording and playback audio controls. If I touch record, it says recording. If I write uh, one, it's the pulse, smart pen. It has a speaker, a microphone, a display, audio I.O., a USB connection, two or four gigabytes of memory, which will hold 200 to 400 hours of recorded audio. But while I'm speaking, it's synchronizing the audio with the ink as I write it on the paper. So if I write two, and I'll draw a picture of a PC or Mac, when I go back and touch this ink, it will play back the audio that's being recorded as I'm speaking right now, wherever I touch the ink. And three, the third part of this platform is a, is a cloud, is our web, where we have applications, but also where an individual teacher can upload their ink and audio to make it accessible to any student, or vice versa. And I'll show you what that means. So I will, uh, one more point. Um, if I write right now, I'll stop here and touch it. So if you look, we've recorded 48 seconds of audio. I think you can't see the resolution. But I'll touch the one on the page and listen. One, it's the pulse. Smart touch pen. two. And I'll draw a picture of a PC or, or Mac. Third part of this platform is a, is a cloud, is okay. a web where we. I can pause it. I can uh, jump to any location within an hour of recording, or I can play it if I'd like to go halfway go back through and it. Touch this speed it up. It will play back the audio that's being recorded as I'm speaking right now, wherever I touch the ink. And three, third part of this platform is a, is a cloud, is a web or where slow we have it down. applications, but also where an individual. Or play at normal speed. So that's a starting point, but that's one application in this platform. The question is, what do you do with a technology like this? So we made it a computer, so I'll activate it as a computer and launch an application right now. If I, uh, if I, I have a, a, a navigation tool at the bottom, I'll use this now, I'll touch Main it. Main menu. I have a menu system. I'll navigate to an application such as a language translator. App paper piano. Translator demo. So it says translator. We'll go to Spanish. Spanish. And I'll write a word. O-N-E. Uno. So it recognizes my word, converts it to Spanish, and speaks it. If I write uh, coffee, and my handwriting's a little shaky. Café. Uh, please, P-L-E-A-S-E. -E. Por favor. Now, if I go back and tap these words, it will hear them again. Uno, café, por favor. Maybe change languages. Spanish, Mandarin. To Mandarin. E, café. And if you can see this, the resolution is, is striking. You can see every uh, kanji character, uh, any iconographic character set. Ching. And one more. Mandarin, Arabic. Wahed, qahwa. Min fadlak. Interesting word. Min fadlak. Okay. So from here, one more thing I'll show you, just to communicate the magic of the technology and the platform, but then I want to get on to show you how teachers are using this now. If I tell you, just for fun, if I write the word piano. Draw your piano. First, draw nine vertical lines from left to right. So I'll draw, do, follow the instructions. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Connect the lines on the top and bottom. So we'll build an instrument, like a keyboard. Write the letter I. This is your instrument icon. D write the letter R. This is your rhythm tracks icon. Tap the keys to play. So I can build a keyboard and let's play it. Oops. In fact, if I'd like to just finish it off quickly. Add sharps and flats. Draw C sharp. Put a C sharp. Draw D sharp. D sharp. Draw F sharp. Draw G sharp. Draw A sharp. Tap the keys to play.
Okay, by the way, take note, this is, it's a piece of paper. And the paper is printed with very small dots, and it can be printed on a LaserJet printer for at no cost. You could take a paper, run it through LaserJet, and print your own interactive paper for free, or acquire notebooks at the standard uh, cost of a notebook. If I take the pen now, and I dock it, it will move to my desktop. And I'll switch software here. Where it will transfer it to my, uh, here we go, Aspen. And the, uh, the ink that I just wrote is now moved to the desktop. And if I click on it, can we see that? Excellent. So this is some desktop software. There you can see our road Aspen. I can zoom in. I can look at the ink more closely, move the page around. And now if I click on the, uh, the, the green ink here where there's audio recorded, it's the Pulse Smart Pen. You'll see that it'll play back and the ink and audio. a PC or Mac. Okay. Now, what does this mean? First of all, this is searchable as well, so a user could type in a word and find it. And just a quick note, um, uh, I write, I'm right-handed. Uh, this is not related. <laughs> this was water skiing this weekend, so it's, it's not tied together. Um, if we now, uh, I'll go to a website. So what happens is, let's consider the notion of taking this ink and audio, docking a pen, moving it to a website so it's shareable. What we've created is something, instead of a podcast, which is audio only, we've created a pencast. And a pencast means the ink and audio can be moved to our cloud where any teacher can take a pen, write out a lesson, dock that pen, and with a click, make that lesson accessible to any student the way the teacher taught it. So we can look at the best learning methods that a teacher has, and a teacher can, with very low cost and following the method they currently use to, to, to educate, they can dock a pen and teach it. So here's an example. This is our, our website. And uh, it's much like a YouTube site. Anyone can post information. You can see this is a teacher who's posted about 120 high school algebra uh, short lessons from two minutes to five minutes. And you can see them along the side here. Systems of linear equations, exponential applications. Here's one on absolute values. Here's solving absolute values. If I click on it, it'll come up. She authored a flash movie with pen and paper from, for, with the LiveScribe Pulse Smart Pen. Docked it and it appears here. And note, take note, I'll go to full screen. You can see this, uh, this, this uh, pen cast. If you notice, it's a two minute and four second pen cast. If I play it, you'll see she speaks about it. And I can play it or click on it. The absolute value of x plus three And I can scrub it as well to see, how, oops, to see how she drew this. Equals nine. I can go back and forth as many times right. as I want. First thing we need to know is that they have anywhere visually, on the page. This visually, as I showed right here in this step. Okay. Take note also when I look back here, this is uh, it's a couple minutes, and there's 6,700 views of this pencast, which is astounding. What we we already have a half million pencasts that have been posted on our website by over at this point 80,000 people. We have teachers working with this right now in New York City, in Florida, Texas, large universities, because it's a completely intuitive, easy technology. Now, this is one side of it. This is a pen cast from the teacher. Let's look now at the student side. So a student can take the pen and can do what's called a think aloud, which means the student sits down and they solve a problem. So they're given a math problem, for instance, or a science problem. They have to write the answer to it. As they write it, they describe what they're doing. This provides a means for the thinking that's being applied by that student to be accessible to the teacher. Let's look at one. Oops. So here is, uh, I believe. So here is, uh, here's a student. 
the problem was written out, and you can see right now, if this was static delivery of content from the student to the teacher, this is what the teacher would see. And they'd look at this and say, well, how did the student do this? So we have a means for being to, to, again, to link the mind of the student with the teacher in either direction. Look at this and listen to the student as they begin to talk. First, I'm going to write an equation for Fran has Fran and Karen have 28 girlfriends. So I'll have to take that and divide it. So she struggles a bit. Eventually, she learns that she can draw a picture. She draws the picture. I can slide through this as a teacher. She gets the solution. She speaks it. She thinks a bit, looks at this, and has to come back here. Four. So she groups it. So what we have now is both directions. The student can deliver information to the teacher, again, just by pen and paper and docking it. Now, let me go to the big idea. Uh, we have it. So we have, I hear distance learning somewhere out there as a comment, but the, um, the access, two minutes, thanks. So let's go here. So here's, here's the big idea looking at connecting minds of the best teachers in the world with the minds of students matching intelligences and modalities of learning using some technology that's intuitive and very low cost, leveraging the current behaviors of those teachers, what they do today, starting there, that's, and doing this in a way that's totally scalable. And as we look at this, let's look at what it means to be scalable. We're leveraging existing behavior. We have to start there, because when you try to introduce completely new behavior, it's very difficult. So teachers prefer to build upon something they already know. On the other hand, I would say revolutionary new technologies begin with evolution. Now let's look at cost, the financial cost, the smart pen today, uh, this is a two gigabyte smart pen. It's available for $129 to $149. Today, it, it, tomorrow at Aspen, it, you can purchase this here for $99. The paper sells for the price of ordinary paper, or you can print your own paper at no cost. And my goal, part of this big idea, within several years is to have a $49 retail pen. And I'm on my way to get there. The second thing is the financial cost. You have to look at the whole issue of cost. It's not just the acquisition cost, as we know. There's ongoing support and maintenance costs. It's a pen and paper. We have training costs. It's a pen and paper. A teacher writes out something. And within six months, we'll have this designed so that a teacher will be able to sit with a notebook in front of a classroom with a pen and paper in real time, be able to do a lesson that the students in the class will be able to see as it's being written simultaneously, which means they're authoring content in real time that subsequent to that class, they can dock the pen, and the students anywhere in their class, the district, or the country will be able to see the method applied by that teacher. They'll be able to replay that lesson over and over again. So the teacher authors content. We get the best teachers authoring the best content. And finally, the cognitive cost as well. So again, if it's too difficult, teachers will not adopt it. So we have something that addresses exactly the way that it is they teach today. So I think what we've done is we've created a tool that allows a student in a classroom to listen, capture the information from a teacher, keep it in their pocket, and access that teacher from their own paper anytime. We've also created technology that allows a teacher to deliver content in the best mode possible using conventional techniques, and for that student to deliver information back to the teacher to communicate something the teacher could not ever see before, because otherwise the teacher has to sit watching over the student's shoulder, have them speak, and talk to them. And now we can do this in real time. And finally, where we're taking this is, there's a page here, and a page here, of course. So here's an example. We can go back, I'll show you here. 
So this is just a, a geometry, a page of geometry content that can be printed on a laser jet printer that's interactive. It's printed with black dots at no additional cost. You can take your pen, write on this. This information can be delivered to the teacher. Again, the teacher can create their own content the way they do it today, and it'll be delivered back to the teacher. And we're, we're right now creating connectors for this to make it completely simple to connect the content via SharePoint, via Google Docs, Google Sites, Google Apps, uh, working with OneNote, so this information from the pen goes directly to OneNote, and to make this via, of course, Evernote, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, and other, other social media, so a teacher can deliver content to any student, and vice versa. And this is LiveScribe, and I'm Jim Margraff. Thanks very much.